You know, before we dive in, um, I mentioned it last week, uh, I, but it's worth mentioning it. Um, can we give a, an incredible hand to not only Pastor Denise, but Khan, uh, Andrew Oliver, um, uh, Farah, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I might be missing some folks. If you may not be aware, this week they came and sorted through a bunch of stuff um, that was damaged, waterlogged. Can we just give them a hand? They, they don't do this for accolades. They don't do this for attention. Um, and in fact, some of them are probably cringing that I even mentioned their name. Um, but these folks really, truly love Jesus, love our church, and so, so grateful to be a part of a community that puts one another before ourselves and, and lives in that vein. And so, um, and yeah, as Pastor Denise mentioned, uh, we're going to have some fun later. I, I don't know, if, have you ever gone through a natural disaster? It's a bonding experience. And so we're going to go through the basement later and take care of stuff. And nothing brings a family together, as Denise said, than difficult times. And so, but we're going to make the best of it. Our God redeems even the most ugly of situations. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. So we're going to continue in our sermon series right where we left off in the book of James James chapter 1, verse 21 to 25. If you haven't been with us, uh, I encourage you to go to our website and, and log in and check in where we've been in this sermon series. Um, we're, we're, fascinatingly enough, we're still in chapter 1. Someone actually recently commented on that. I was like, will we ever see chapter 2 of James? I assure you we shall. But as we've noted before, James in a short amount of verses, has so much content that goes in so many different directions. In many ways, these verses feel like we're doing stop-and-go driving, something that we're familiar with in New York. Uh, it, it's it's stop-and-go. It's this new idea, this next idea. And as we've mentioned before we even read the verses, the context of this letter is that James is writing to persecuted believers in Jesus, Jewish believers in Jesus, that due to persecution, their lives have been uprooted completely. Many of them have had to flee from homes, from businesses, relocate. And he's writing such profound words, if you go back and hear the verses before this moment, to a people that are suffering, their lives have been uprooted, he tells them, consider it pure joy. For people that have lost uh, wealth and income, he says uh, that whether you have a little or you have much, your identity in Jesus is what's most important. For people that are going through suffering, he says God is transforming you. There, there's so, such richness that we've been in, and today God has even more for us. And so let's dive in, verse 21 to 25. It says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth. And the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us 
even now as we come before your word with humble hearts. Lord, we pray you would speak to us. We need to hear your voice. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him in a fresh and transformative way to each of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn, um, and so I get uh, leery. You see, I'm even, I'm even hesitant to actually say it. The, the, the macho, the machismo in me that's still there, the culture I grew up in, doesn't want to admit that I get scared around animals. I, they, just, they just mess with me. And so, uh, and it ranges. It can be like a little ferret, um, just like cute little ferret, stay away from me, um, a, a dog, but for sure wildlife. I don't get the allure. How many like petting zoos? You can raise your hand, it's okay. I, I'm not gonna shame you, but I will admit I don't understand you because I don't understand the allure of going to go pet an animal, uh, well, because I didn't grow up around them. However, I have some friends that have grown up around them, that, grow, that have grown up on farms, that have raised livestock, and a funny story was one time a friend told me when he saw both a pig and a lamb fall into mud. And he said, as they fell into the mud, for a moment, you couldn't tell the difference between the pig and the lamb because they were both covered in mud. But all of a sudden, the difference became clear because once they stepped out of the mud, the pig wanted to go back into the mud and wallow in it, whereas the lamb essentially cried. It wanted it off of its body, off of its fur. And why I begin there is because the, 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 the text that we just read tells us that we're to get rid of all moral filth. That's a heavy language, right? We're going to unpack that one. All moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. In the original language, that phrase, the word planted in you, it actually, it's the only place in the New Testament where that phrase, that word is used. But in Greek literature outside of the New Testament, when that phrase is used, it gives the idea of what is natural, what is in one's nature, not something that can be taught or caught, but something that is naturally within. And it's important for us to realize that what Jesus desires to do, what James is trying to uh, reverberate into this community by saying, receive the word that's implanted in you, a word that doesn't just superficially change your behavior, but a word that changes your nature. What's changed in us as followers of Jesus, it's not that we lost the capacity to fall in the mud. How many have ever met a hateful Christian? You say, man, that's an oxymoron, but I, I get it. It's, it's not consistent with who we're following. It's, it's, not how, it's not the norm that we should accept. But every Christian has the capacity to hate, though we're commanded not to. Every Christian has the capacity to be selfish. Every Christian has the capacity to be racist, has the capacity to be a hoarder, to be greedy. But what's changed is not our capacity to do those things. What's changed is our nature not wanting to do those things. One of the evidences that you know that God's word has been planted in you and a deep work of grace is active 
is that the things that we once wallowed in, we no longer have a taste for it. If we mess up, if we go in that direction, we cry, just like the lamb. Jesus is not just desirous to change our external behavior. He's not some morality cop over your shoulder, seeing if you're going to do something right or wrong. What he is, he's a transforming God that through his word, grafted inside of us, changes our nature. And now through his grace and power, we find ourselves with the glorious capacity to love. Something that maybe you could have been kind-hearted. Maybe you could have been a very nice person. I meet very nice people. I'm sure you have as well. But there's a difference between being nice and having supernatural love coursing through your veins. A love that lays one's life down for another. That is only possible through the Word of God transforming our human nature. James is saying that this happens when the word goes inside of us. And if you were with us last week, you remember that the, the scriptures before these verses, James calls us to be quick to listen. And we talked about that it's an invitation for us to have a posture of attentiveness to the word of God, to live constantly attentive to what God is saying, to be a, a word-driven people, that we're listening to the voice of God and we're attentive. But now he's going deeper. He's saying it's not just enough for us to live attentively. We have to receive the word inside of us. It has to become implanted in our souls. God is changing our nature. That's what he's in the business of doing. If you say, man, I don't know about following Jesus, that's hard. I want to agree with you and, and one-up you. It's impossible. It's impossible to follow Jesus. But what makes it possible to follow him is that his word gets inside of us, changes our nature, and now all of a sudden we have the capacity to follow him as he calls us. He changes our nature, but it doesn't just stop there. And I think this is a necessary balance that we have to wrestle with. It's not enough that Jesus, for Jesus to change your nature if you and I do not nurture that new nature that's inside of us. How many have ever heard that ongoing kind of circular argument? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Can I submit to you when it comes to this new life that we have in Jesus? It's both. We need God to change our nature. And once having received the word that changes our nature, that takes us from darkness to light, from death to life, then it's incumbent upon us to nurture that new nature, to grow the new life that's inside of us. If you prayed a prayer when you were five years old at your grandmother's church and said, I want to follow you, Jesus, and you've nurtured nothing from that prayer, then you haven't truly experienced the fullness of life that God desires for you to grow in. This new life in Jesus is abundant. You, you, don't, you never reach the bottom. It, it, it's, it's expansive. And what you and I are invited to do is not just receive a new nature, but then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are invited to nurture this new nature. Because as you see, 
Not only is James in verse 21 saying to humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you, the word that changes your nature, but while you're doing that, he says, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you. And so receive a new nature that's made possible only through the word of God entering and being embedded in your life and at the same token, nurture that new nature by getting rid of everything that's inconsistent with that new nature. Saying, get rid of all of that. So at the same time, we're humbly receiving God's word that tells us about our new true nature in Christ. We're also invited to get rid of who we no longer are. If you are in Jesus, if you're a follower in Jesus, there should be a definitive before and after. Not that, not that that's like perfect and not that it's like such a deep contrast. And sometimes that before and after is a slow progression. But there should be a definitive before and after in that Jesus has taken you and is taking you from who you used to be and progressively showing you, teaching you, revealing you who you now are in him. So God changes our nature, but this new nature must be nurtured in us as we get rid of everything that's inconsistent with who we now are. One of the most amazing experiences uh, during this whole pandemic season, it's 18 months actually yesterday that our daughter Brielle was born. And as many of you know, she was born with Down syndrome. And that has been a radically different experience seeing her grow than it was seeing my daughter Alexa, Luke, and Michael. There were things that they just naturally did that I never really took the time to be fascinated by it. It's a fascinating thing to watch a human being grow. But if you're not paying attention to it as keenly, then you miss some amazing things. And also, if they constantly come into your bed and wake you up in the middle of the night, you'll be too tired to pay attention to the glorious things that they're doing. With Brielle, we notice everything. When the first time her little hand took a Cheerio, and put it to her mouth. First time she grabbed something and pulled herself up. All of those things that was easy to take for granted, they've been made possible because of intentional physical therapy. She has four different therapies, twice a week, all in the attempts of early intervention, trying to uh, uh, prevent extreme lags in development that are very that, that's, that's the nature of Down syndrome. What's been amazing is to see her capacity to do these things, they're inside of her. They just need to be nurtured. They just need to be catalyzed. Her, her leg just needs to be positioned in the right way for her to activate that muscle for the first time. And then eventually it, it becomes just a natural thing. She no longer needs that help. Similarly, in our walk with God, there are things that need to be nurtured. Specifically, we need to nurture out of us moral filth. <laughs> I couldn't wait to preach 
this verse, it's like, because this language is so jarring, go tomorrow to your workplace, wherever that is, and say, have you been engaged in moral filth this weekend? And you will be un you'll be unemployed very fast. It's a jarring phrase for our culture. And said, so, man, what is God saying here? It's interesting, when you, when you dig into the original language, essentially, this was just a catch-all phrase. It's just a phrase that was used to describe a bunch of things. But the general idea is shabbiness. Have you ever felt shabby? I won't say, have you ever seen someone look shabby? Because that feels judgmental. Um, but perhaps you've seen someone that looks shabby. Let's, I want you to understand the concept. Imagine something that is unkept, untended to, uh, hair not fully combed. Um, it, you know, I have a friend, I love him to pieces, and, for, and we have a good relationship, so I could be honest with him. Every time I see him, I say, bro, why are you not cutting that nose hair? It's, it's bad, man. I love you. This, like, it protrudes. I know that's gross, you know, but it's like big. It's like a, like a, like a dread coming out of his, And he's not even Rastafarian. And so it's just a big, like, unkept shabbiness. James is saying, get rid of all moral shabbiness. In other words, he's saying this general term, whatever devalues the soil of your life, from the new nature of God continuously being nurtured in you. Get rid of the weeds. I have a neighbor that she meticulously tends to her garden. And every time I see her tending to her garden, it's a, it's a physical reminder of what the spiritual life in Christ is like. She not only is watering, but she's pulling up weeds. And she does that at the same time. She knows it's not enough to foster life if I don't tend to what's dragging life away. And James is saying, foster this new life that's made possible through the engrafted, implanted word of God. But also, pull out, get rid of anything that detracts from that new life. The weeds, the shabbiness, the things that we like... This is not great, but we tolerate, we put up with. But if it's inconsistent with the new life that we have in Jesus, we can't let those things persist. There's things in our life that are the, that are the equivalent of a small barking dog. It's not destroying you. It's not, it doesn't run the risk of killing you. But it's definitely taking away from the quality of your life of the small barking dog that's just lightly gnawing on you. That can go on for years. No, no life is lost, but something's diminished. James is saying anything. Get rid of what you are not, of who you no longer are, while nurturing who you now are. In other words, we've all become spiritual gardeners in Jesus. We all have been given the task of nurturing this new life, feeding it, growing it, while also pulling out and getting rid of anything that doesn't foster that continuous growth. So here's what it looks like. 
you receive the word of God in your life, you now have this new nature, and you also find yourself continuously removing weeds from your soul. Those two things don't cease to happen. They, they continue. This is the new norm for us. We have this new life, and we're constantly tending to our souls and making sure that the shabbiness isn't growing, isn't festering. We're pulling out the weeds. The, it, the thought process is kind of like this. Be, and this is something, stuff I tell myself. So I'm going to share my inner thoughts. You're going to say, are we ready for that, Chris? Yes, yes, these are good inner thoughts. Because I'm freely loved and accepted by God through Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me dig up everything in the soil of my heart that's unloving. Because I'm loved, because I'm accepted, help me dig up everything in my heart that causes me to be unloving. Because that's not consistent with this new life that you've put inside of me. For you, what's hindering you from humbly accepting who you now are in Jesus and powerfully rejecting who you no longer are, the weeds that try to derail you? And here's where this gets tricky. Because again, it's this phrase, the catch-all phrase, moral filth, shabbiness, sometimes what needs to be pulled out of our life is not a clearly evil thing. But it's a good thing that we've allowed to become reckless in our life. A good thing that's derailing us from the new life that we have in Jesus. It's a good thing to be successful at work. But if that success comes at the expense of relationships, of your health, of your walk with God, then now that good thing has become shabbiness in your life. Something that you may have to get rid of. Being a morally good person, I wish the world had more of them. I can tell you through objective data, the most ironclad, scientifically proven data, that human beings are broken. I've studied it myself. You know how? Here's the evidence that I want to give you. People park in front of my driveway all the time. <laughs> there is a car in the driveway. You can see that this is a private residence, and yet they park right there, sometimes looking at me in the eye as they're doing this. If you can remember to pray for me during the week, because there's been many moments I was like, man, I didn't get arrested for selling drugs when I was a kid. I didn't, but this is what's going to take me down? Like, I'm going to have an altercation with somebody? Jesus, please don't let me go to jail over an altercation. But people are evil. They're broken. They're morally shabby, parking in driveways that don't belong to them, being rude sitting on top of you when they don't have to. There's an empty seat on the train. Why must you come? Next, can I get an amen, right? The world is a broken place. None of this is in my notes. Let me get back. But being a morally good person, that's a good thing. But when the basis of your identity is your own personal moral goodness rather than you being a redeemed, rescued person, through Jesus, that's a good thing that's gone bad. 
But look what else James says. So plain, so clear. Verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Can you turn to someone next to you? And if you do not feel comfortable, like talking in close proximity, then in your eyes, look at them and, and like convey, do what it says. Do what it says. This is what James is saying. Do what it says. How simple. God says something. Do what he says. James is trying to prepare these people who are going through persecution. Their lives have been uprooted. Everything that they banked their identity on in the past has been lifted from them. And in the midst of all this turmoil and tragedy, he's telling these people, do what God says. The way forward, the way uh, to growth, the way to maturity, the way to continue to nurture this new life that we now have in Jesus. This new life is nurtured by doing what God says. You know, it's important to be clear on that, that Jesus, his desire is not that you and I memorize his word, debate his word, post his word, tweet his word, deconstruct his word. His desire is that we obey his word. Not philosophize about it. Not say, man, that, that sounds like it's tenable for our times. Or, oh, that's, that feels a bit outdated. No, do what he says. You see how we cherry pick in our society what we do that God says? We'll say yay for justice, but no to personal holiness. James warns us against the temptation to listen to God's word without the intention of obeying God's word. And then he makes this beautiful picture for us. He says, listening but not obeying is equivalent to forgetting who you are. He says, the person who listens and doesn't obey is like someone who looks at themselves in the mirror and walks away forgetting what they look like. See, it's, the way this is being framed for us, obedience is not conforming to this imposed moral code. Rather, it's living in accordance with who Jesus made you to be. Obedience is simply you living out who you now are. So from that vantage point, obedience is not foreign, rather disobedience is for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus. What's weird is not our obedience to Jesus. What's weird is when we disobey. Because in disobeying, we are forgetting who we are. But look at what James says. What's needed in order to receive this new life and be positioned to nurture this new life, going back to verse 21, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And then he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. What's needed, what's ground zero, what's first base to have this new life and to nurture this new life is humility. 
It says, humbly accept the word that's planted in us. Humbly. Do you know that the gospel makes it possible that you don't need an advanced degree to become a new creation in Jesus? Jesus is not checking what school you went to to see if, if it meets, if it cuts snuff. He, he, you don't need to have a certain amount of money in your bank account in order to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to have a certain pedigree or your family lineage has to have a certain stature. You don't have to be morally upright. You can be a broken person with a broken past and none of that disqualifies you. Or you can be a morally upright person. You could have a great family. You could have a robust bank account. And the good news is none of that qualifies you. The only thing, the starting point, the foundation that we never ever find ourselves building off of it. There will never be a day where you and I can follow Jesus without this cornerstone foundation of humility. It's what starts us in this journey. It's what continues to spur us on James is writing to these people whose lives have been disrupted because of their faith in Jesus, and he's reminding them, stay humble. Humbly receive God's word. We enter this life of following Jesus, and we continue to be transformed by his love, thankfully not through great skill or achievement, but through humility. You know why receiving the word of God requires humility? Because the word of God will describe you to yourself in ways that will be jarring. At first, it's hard to see yourself the way God sees you. Right now, some of you in this room struggle to believe that when God looks at you, he looks at you with a smile. That right now, as he's thinking of you, a smile erupts on his face. And why that's difficult for some of us is because you're thinking, he knows what I did this weekend. He knows about that secret stuff I keep struggling with. He knows about where I'm broken and where I'm not meeting the standard. Yet God would describe you, even in the midst of that brokenness, as you're loved. You're accepted because of my son. I don't force a smile when I look at you. I erupt with joy. I love you. You have to humbly receive that. Our pride doesn't want us to receive that. Our pride wants God to love us based on our attainment and our achievement. We are more secure with love that we earn because we can control that kind of love. But a love you can't earn can't be controlled. And if you can't control it, you come under its power. Humbly receive who God says you are. But also, we need to humbly reject who God says we are not. And this is where what the, the imagery is so powerful when we contrast it to our day and age because James says to humbly receive the word of God is like someone staring at themselves in a mirror 
And if you do what God says, essentially you walk away from that mirror not forgetting who you now are. As you do what God says, you walk away and you're constantly remembering, no, this is who I am. This is who I am in Jesus. This is who I'm not. I reject who I'm not. I receive who I am. As you do what God says, and you keep staring, he says, he says in, in James, verse 24 and onward, after looking himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. For the rest of your life as a follower of Jesus, you will need the mirror of God's word. The mirror that you stare into and see who you are and see who you're not and walk away doing who you are and rejecting who you're not. But in our society, we reject the idea of a mirror. We prefer a screen. In our society, in our culture, we reject the idea of something outside of us telling us who we are. We want to project onto the world who we believe we are from within. You will have, I will have a very difficult time in this journey of nurturing this new life if our ideas of self-expression are greater than God's revelation. If you cherish more who you believe you are to be rather than who God says you are, then the mirror of God's word will become useless. It will lose its power. We will essentially get rid of the mirror and find a screen that we can project onto it who we are. See, our culture tells us that the freedom we long for, the joy we ache for, the abundance of life we desire is found when the individual self is exalted and we shed the chains of community, moral standards, or restraint. God's word gives us a different vision for our lives. One that's rooted in grace, transformed by love. One that has sacrificial discipline for the sake of supernatural love toward neighbor and oneself. When we see who we are in God's word, we'll discover very quickly that God, the true God, doesn't just co-sign every idea that comes into our minds, but often he'll reject, he'll resist, and say, don't go there, don't do that, because that's not who you are. That's not who, that's who you were. I don't know about you, but if the God that I serve never challenges me, never pushes back, never corrects me, then I'm not really serving the God of the scriptures. I'm serving a God that I've made up in my mind. When we look at the word and we see ourselves in the word, we realize that we will never be free through exalting the self. We'll only be free by humbling ourselves and accepting who we truly are and rejecting who we're not. 
Could I invite us to stand as the worship team comes forward? And as we stand, could I invite us just to raise our hands, open our palms, and in this moment of prayer, What is Jesus saying about you, saying to you that you need to humbly receive? Is he saying that you're loved no matter what you do and your pride rejects that? Is he saying that you're far more worth your income, your bank account, that your possessions don't define you? Is he saying you're beautiful? in his eyes and that you have infinite worth you need to humbly accept that do we need to humbly reject who we're no longer do we need to humbly reject I'm, I'm no longer a hateful person I'm not a bitter person a vengeful person that's not who I am any longer I'm not driven by my lust I'm not driven by my pride by my impulses I live from a different center. Jesus, Lord, with our hands open, we pray, help us to nurture the new life that's inside of us. Help us to do what you say, Jesus. Oh, help us to do what you say. To not just listen to it, not just consider it. To do what you say. Cherish. 